The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the B-Side for episode 1648 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the end of identity politics. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, and joining us, some of my best friends are black author, Tanner Colby. Hello, Tanner. Hello, Mr. Thurston. It is a, a, a pleasure to have you. It's good to be back in the temporary driver's seat here while our good friend Anna Holmes is on vacation, yes? Sick and on vacation, both at the same time, That's I think. That's a terrible combination. I you know, be it is. sick while you have to work and right. on vacation when you're feeling fine. So wishing you the best, Anna. Also in studio with us, Sarah Jones, social media editor at TNR, The New Republic. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And rounding out our spectrum is Latoya Peterson, Deputy Editor for Digital Innovation at ESPN. Good to have you back with us, Latoya. Thank you. Good to and be And where are you back with us from? Uh, today, it's Arizona. At, th- at this point, it's going to be like today, a running gag. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I have never it is, in the It city. is. Like, where in the world is Latoya? <laughs> are you on the run, Latoya Peterson? Like, are you trying to tell us something? Hmm. Don't you want to yeah, know? that you can't say with words. <laughs> I think the next time you're on the show, like once we get a third location, we can triangulate what's really going on here. <laughs> um, so listen, our last episode, we talked about identity politics, quote unquote, and whether it was even possible to avoid them or what even they are. Also, how Trump's campaign exploited them. Here's our producer, A.C. Valdez, with some of what y'all had to say about that and more. AC. Well, I want to start off with a call today with a caller who did not leave her name, but uh, she had some insights about Donald Trump and his narcissistic tendencies. So here we go. So I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. And my concern is actually with something you said. It's really brief comment, but I think it bears kind of expanding um, during your identity politics podcast this week, he talked about how Trump, how it was ironic that Trump said that Hillary Clinton was going to get in the White House and then make all her friends rich when that's exactly what he's doing. And and that's not irony, that's intentional. And I really want to call that out because it is part and parcel of his narcissistic personality. One of the major intersectionality issues that we don't talk about a lot is mental health. We talk about disability. We don't specifically talk a lot about mental health. And I think that over the next four years, we're going to have to get really smart um, in terms of talking about mental health and in particular, some of the ways in which uh, narcissists, and that is what Trump is, uh, inflict psychological violence on the people in their thrall. Um, and in this case, that is now the entire country and in some ways the world, what Trump is doing is a classic projection strategy that narcissists use, which is when they are guilty of something, they accuse you of doing it. So he, in this case, Hillary Clinton was his opposition, so he accused her of doing the thing that he was planning on doing. We have to get smart about listening to him and understanding what he is telling us, which is different than what he is saying. And I I hope that although this is not the central theme of your podcast, that that level of awareness about his gaslighting strategies, about the ways that he goes after people's perceptions of reality and people's sense of what is true will be a central theme of of the way that you cover this administration and the way that you cover issues of race in this administration. Uh, I thank you so much for all the work that you've done 
listening to this podcast has helped me uh, get woke. And I am so grateful <laughs> because I'm a better human being and better able to be a force for good in the world. So thank you. Thank you, anonymous first time caller. Uh, I'll open the floor. Anybody have thoughts on uh, psychological uh, diagnoses or even, you know, some obvious observations about this person and whether the word irony is the right word to use or some right. other way of talking about what he's doing that's more accurate and more, and more importantly, more useful. Having dealt with a narcissist, he's definitely, insofar as one can armchair diagnose. He's the best narcissist. He's, he's the, he he's the greatest. He's the most <laughs> tremendous narcissist. And you see a lot of like, well, Trump said he was going to help the working class. Let's see if he makes good on that promise. Like the, all of that journalism needs to die. Nothing. He has ever, he has no relationship to the truth. He will say anything to the person who's in front of him to get out of them, whatever he wants, whether it's like she's saying, projecting onto them what he's uh, the crime he's guilty of himself or just trying to flatter them and elicit something out of them. So his relationship to the truth means nothing. And what I think is most important in uh, what I'm coming to realize most important in dealing with him is that he's not interesting in the way that, you know, I wrote a book once about, have a, you seen his face? It's like super interesting. He's fascinating, but he's not interesting. And there's a difference, which is that, <laughs> you know, I wrote a book once about a character who fundamentally did not change, was incapable of change, never acknowledged his problems or his ability to deal with the change. So it was a biography of this person, but they themselves were not the main character in the biography because they never changed in order to have a story that, you know, someone needs to change. What was important in the story is how all the people around this person reacted to the, the, this force of nature blowing yeah. through their lives. And, you know, Trump is Hurricane Katrina. The hurricane is not the story. The story is the people huddled in the Superdome. The story is the institutional forces in the Army Corps of Engineers who failed to protect the people in the Superdome. So when analyzing Trump, stop talking about what he's saying. Almost kind of stop talking about him. Talk about the effect you are seeing on the people around him the moral compromises of someone like Paul Ryan. That's the story. And all yeah. the people who are in his orbit are the people we need to be talking about. Sarah, welcome to the family. You want to jump in on this? Yeah, I agree that he's definitely a narcissist. I don't think there's any question about that. I'm not sure how fond I am of using the term gaslighting to describe it, since, you know, this is a term that has historically been used to describe an abusive dynamic and specifically a romantic relationship. I'd just rather but don't call you love America? <laughs> is it gaslighting appropriate <laughs> for a country that you're supposed to be in love with? Yeah, no, like. That's true. I just would so much rather call it what it is, which is just lying. Like, he's mm. just lying. Like, these are falsehoods. He's not interested in the truth at all. It's not even post-truth. He's just lying. And I, I would just prefer to, like, really keep the emphasis on that over and over and over again. LaToya, I know you have, there's some things that you can't say, but is there anything you want to say on, on this topic, you know, <laughs> just uh, from any angle? And not to put you on the spot while giving you some shadow to hide in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> from peeking out from the shadows. You know, I think that it's good to be careful about our word choices these days. Um, I do think yeah. that the caller was totally right in understanding that we say things that we don't mean because I think we're trying to mitigate the disaster or mitigating things. And I'm, I'm looking at the terms people are starting to latch on to. And this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. But I also feel like if, if there is any time in which we need precision in how we describe what's happening in the American consciousness right now, I think it's now. I agree. I, I also think irony 
doesn't give enough intention to it. And I think it's like, oh, it just it's kind of coincidental in the way that that word was tossed out in, in last week's show. No, like who said it? I don't even remember that. I don't that. I remember hearing it too. It was it was fleeting and in passing. Right. And I but I don't remember who said it. Right. I will find out. And, and I will find and that I will person. Come after and I will, yeah. On I the Twitter, I think it might have either been you or Adam, but I, I, I'm leaning towards Adam. It was a male voice. It. It, it was a male. Unsurprisingly, quietly pointing fingers over there. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just narrow it down. From we don't remember. It was one of my. It was male. one of my own uh, <laughs> that, that did this to us. As a recommendation, there are a lot of good guides to um, how to interpret and handle the storm i love the katrina metaphor tanner that's coming focusing just on the tweets and just on the words is the wrong way that's is very distracting on the media uh, podcast and radio show they have an episode called normalize this where they talk to people who've actually been through this stuff before whether it's under berlusconi or under putin or, or in uh, other more uh, despotic or authoritarian regimes turkey you know under erdogan comes to mind and you don't focus on the words, you focus on the actions. I think there's a, that's another angle, just uh, as Tanya, you spoke about what happens around. And I think it's very, very important. Like We expect some level of shame to accompany this office and that people won't do things because they've never been done. This guy's proven that he loves doing things that have never been done. So you can't count on that to work with him. But there are other people around in the Paul Ryans of the world, the people who have just been elected to office, who are more responsive and they should be held to a standard and to a line. So if you can't pressure the liar himself, you can pressure the enablers. Uh, what else we got, AC? All right. So I'm going to move on to this email from Rory. And I love getting emails from high school teachers. And I figured you all would like this one too. He's making a little bit of an argument and I'm wondering if you all will agree. I have become a huge fan of your podcast over the past year as a white. Agree. <laughs> yes, we agree. Completely. Yes. As a white 100%. anti-racist high school educator who is fundamentally committed to multiculturalism, I have found your show entertaining and informative, and I've used your show on several occasions in my race and American history class. Thank you for that. I wanted to respond to a moment in your most recent episode entitled The End of Identity Politics. Midway through the broadcast, Anna, Tanner, Jamil, and Adam got to a point where they were arguing that identity and class are not mutually exclusive political causes. This should not be surprising to anyone who is familiar with intersectionality and multiculturalism, because socioeconomic class is an identity as much as race, ethnicity, gender, or sexuality. If progressive Americans hope to build a political coalition around identity politics that won't be torn asunder by internecine racism or classism then they will have to embrace and support historically marginalized and oppressed identities across the big eight identifiers. And he does not list which ones those are. Sounds like a sports. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. a select handful that seemed politically pragmatic at the time in solidarity, Rory. So I'm interested in particular about the socioeconomic class as an identity bit of that, but I don't know if you all want to comment on that or other parts of it. I'm just looking at Sarah. Yeah. She's real smart right now. <laughs> yeah. Save us. Oh, God, I hope I can. I don't know about that. I think it is useful to think of socioeconomic class as an identity. I know, like, there's a lot of academic debate over whether or not, you know, class function is a, as an identity. But I think it's politically useful to think of it in that way. And I think I would argue that the Democratic Party's failure to view it in that way really ceded some ground to Trump. And we saw the consequences of that in this election. And again, like, Without coddling people's prejudices, feeding into the xenophobia and racism that clearly propelled Trump to power, I think it is possible for the Democratic Party to talk about class in a smarter way. I think it's incumbent upon them to do that. 
and to really like discuss this idea of solidarity, I think that would be a good wedge. One of the things I loved from last week's show, and uh, just for the record, I'm able to love shows I'm not a part of. So well done, everybody. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I I also love the show when I'm not on. I can just enjoy and not have to work. It's ideal. But this, the challenge of Hillary Clinton as a representative for that class solidarity, given her increasing distance from her very grounded in class background and to a recent class of like elite millionaire hanging out with billionaires, mm-hmm. flying around, keeping up with the Soros's kind of lifestyle. And in the brush with which Trump was able to paint her, that felt so believable, you know, despite the hypocrisy of it all, she fit it. Right. And, and so if you're speaking to people who uh, don't pay attention constantly, aren't reading every position paper, don't know, I don't even know what the big eight are. Just a little uh, note from Cody, our tech maven. Yeah. Uh, he sent me this thing on Slack identifying what is diversity according to the Independent School Diversity Network. Ability. ISDN. Huh, mental and or physical. Age, ethnicity, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic status slash class. So I think that's what Rory might have been referring to. Okay. Are those eight yeah, things? Those are eight things. I, I totally I did not I wasn't count. Counting. I did yes. not count. No, I'm bad at math. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about you know all these different identities oh. and we we group people together in big groups and we sort of forget that like all of us fit in different parts of those eight. We all sort of have all eight of those exist in in, in all of us, mm-hmm. right? So you I know, mean, I, I don't, I'm just an American Tanner. Right. I actually don't subscribe well, I don't. Yeah. To the big eight theory. I know you don't. You don't see eight. You only see seven. And I'm nine. just an Earth being. Um, actually, <laughs> no. But I had a friend in 2008, a black woman who supported Hillary through the primaries because she said, since she was very aware of it, she said, "My identity as a woman." is 51% to the 49% of my identity as a black person. Like, wow, she quantified it. Well, I mean, That's she didn't, so you know. She, that is so <laughs> weird. But she's like, she you know. A, she ran an internal diagnostic. Right, she ran an internal <laughs> diagnostic. She said, my, my identity as a woman is slightly more important to right. me than my identity as a black person. And right. so, therefore, I want Hillary, but once Brock was, was, was the man, she was all for him, of course. When we talk about class as an identifier and why we talk about white people as the working class and black people as black people irrespective of class is because if you're a white person who's not like wealthy or just like an average run of the Joe white person, white is your racial identity and working class is your class identity. But unless you're one of these alt-right morons, there's this sense that you, you can't speak about yeah, your white you identity. So, so I'm going to hang on to working class with everything I got yeah. and I'm going to be JD Vance and I'm going to put that out there and I'm mm-hmm. working. Class, and, they, and so they really, really, and so, and even in the media too, this, the, the rural white working class <laughs> has become this thing. And because, because we're not supposed to talk about the whiteness part of it. But so, so we have an interesting episode today with Latoya and I on the edges and Tanner and Sarah in the middle. It's a, it's a double stuff Oreo edition of how to be black. <laughs> and for Tanner and Sarah, who I understand have uh, come from worlds where whiteness prevails mm-hmm. yes. and, 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 and poverty is also a reality as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just rich white. It's not like Upper West Side whiteness. Like it's, right. a, it's a more rural, more like grounded whiteness in American history. Like is the label white working class something that actual white working class people wear? Or is it just a media label? Like, do the people themselves be like, I'm working class. Do they wear that? Or is it just the writers about people who do that? I have to say, I've never heard anyone back home refer to themselves <laughs> as like, I am the white working class. 
Right. Like, people just really don't talk about themselves like that. Now, I don't know if maybe that's going to change now that this kind of has filtered down into the media and yeah. into the conversation about these voters and what they want. So it could change. I think it's important to talk about it anyway, even if they don't refer to themselves that way, yeah. because I don't want Trump or the alt-right to move in like you are a member of the white working class. This is your identity. And, well, right. you know, and what I, sus- well, I think I yeah. think it's fair to say they see themselves as the Americans. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're real yeah. Americans. Yeah. They're real Americans. Yeah. And then and then there's everyone else. And so and that's do a- do we paint them as no, you're white people. Do we paint them as no, you're working class people. Do we put them in an identity? Is that more productive or less? I don't know. I just want to point um, something out other, real quick that I'm hearing, yeah, which is got, interesting. So my class background, which I used to write about a lot on racial issues, is that coming from like poverty class, we're not even working class yet, to like where I currently am, which is some kind of like weird middle class of some sort. Um, weird middle class. I like that. Yeah, it's not. I don't, I don't know how to ex- exactly explain it. It's weird. In that morass of not quite upper class, but rolling around. And I hear them, they, they, they. Mm-hmm outside identifications and not us we think was who I used to be insider identifications and I wonder about that because you know when we hear these media narratives you hear these discussions with people talking about class a lot of times it's people being like we are (laughs) this wealthier middle class let me analyze you right let me Mm -hmm. tell you about you whereas if you're from this different class like stuff just is and it's a thing that you don't necessarily feel the need to quantify, nor would you necessarily accept somebody else's identification of you based on that thing. So I just find the language that we're using really interesting. I still, for the record, I don't think I can identify as a person that is of the lower class any longer, but I definitely identify as a child of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel you here. You same thing. One other historical note. I'm reading this book, White Trash. It's taking me forever to finish it. It's a very long book, but the... The use of class as an identifier is not new, and right. it's it's ancient in the young age of this country, and the idea that poor white people were even a separate race right. to be flushed out of the bloodstream of America, especially when the eugenics craze hit, mm-hmm. is quite popular. And, and class as an identifier, not just among lower class, but also among very upper class, mm-hmm. as in like, we're the real Americans as mm-hmm. upper class people versus we're the real Americans like everybody wants to claim the flag right. <laughs> and the realness and the authenticity and you're not you know you're not legitimate if you're outside of my circle basically wh- whoever's drawing that circle so i i love your point Latour, about who's drawing the circle and who's getting to use who's analyzing whom here yeah uh, and there's also and like how like accurate that is two quick things on that one too so one we mm-hmm. also can't divorce this from like the historical context so i'm doing i'm researching a piece for work which means it's about sports but one of the things that's interesting is i'm looking at the history of one of the first one of the first like black baseball pioneers and how his story is very rooted in the fact that his family came from black strike breakers who were kind mm-hmm. of trained into these mines in like the rural northwest because the white workers had tried to organize and unionize and the black workers were brought in to break the strike because before that the mines wouldn't hire any uh, Negro workers. They said they just would not do it. And so it was interesting because there's that idea of the working class and a certain type of solidarity. But there's always been that racial tension there from people who've been neglected or forced outside of the working class and people who've mm-hmm. been divided against different ends, right? So then it's, no, you can't let these black workers take white men's jobs and, you know, vice versa. And so that might oh, also be one of the divides, like not just necessarily that whiteness has been kind of made invisible, 
by this idea that it's a default, but also because race is a very useful lever to divide the working class. And I hate when I see mm-hmm. even like white progressives fall into this and I'm like, well, we really need to be talking about class and not race. And you're just like, look, homie, like, seriously, did you not think about how these things are used to draw wedges in kind of worker blocks and what happens? So that's also a thing that I find very, very fascinating when we start talking about these topics, the way in which these identity markers are used to express both an affinity and, and like a shared goal and a shared who we are statement about the world, but also to drive a wedge. You are not us. You are mm-hmm, different from mm-hmm. us. And I don't think I want to know you. Yeah. Lack of curiosity. Go on and on about that, but we won't. AC, what else we got? So we're going to go to this Facebook comment from Betty, who is referencing something Adam said in our last B-side, Adam Serwer. In the last episode, or maybe on the last B-side, what he said about hate crimes and actual policy that may come out of Trump's administration being very different struck me. And Adam was referring to the fact that he doesn't feel as threatened as, say, he might imagine a Latino immigrant might or a Muslim immigrant might in this current political climate. And she goes on to say, I'm a Jewish woman living in a very conservative state, so I've always felt like a stranger in a strange land, but even more so since the election. In the past, people have called me, a word I won't say, that refers to Jewish people, it's derogatory, uh, but I'd brush it off. The current climate of hate crimes has really got to me, but Adam's statement about policy and hate crimes has resonated with me and allowed me to take a step back and realize that I will most likely not be a target of anything that the state may put into policy. I will continue working with people who are the direct targets of some of Trump's hateful policies. I've been working with the Muslim community in my area as well as Black Lives Matter and Surge, but I started feeling some fatigue already. I needed that kick in the butt to stay focused on the policy issues. So thank you. So what do you think? I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear that this was a reminder and a kick in the butt. I think there was a, from my perspective, an immediate response of woe-ness that will quickly fade in terms of the reality of how, how unevenly distributed the pain is likely to be and how easy it is in, in the short term to say you stand for something, but in the long term to not practically do anything about it when the inconvenience isn't leveled directly at you. And you see this in, in very small anecdotal cases of women wearing hijabs being harassed or outright attacked and like who stands up to defend them. In many cases, no one is. But I bet privately, online, many of these people would like the right Facebook pages, would share the right hashtags, and would talk amongst their friends in a safe environment about how wrong it is for someone to harass someone because of their garb. So it's helpful, useful, positive reminder, uh, but also a reminder of how hard it will be and how easily we slide into even more oppression. Mm -hmm. That is a natural order, like the sliding into oppression It's how oppression happens. No one actively says like, I want to really screw over a whole group of people just because they worship differently or look differently or wear the wrong sneakers. But we let it happen because letting bad things happen is often how bad things can happen. It doesn't take a big group of people to really actively pursue it. It takes a larger group to not do much to stand against it. Here's a a thought about how the other and hatred and hate crimes is changed or not changed. I don't know. It's just, it's a matter of perception, which is that if you take the rhetoric of the campaign and what you saw bubbling up from the swamp, as far as anti-blackness, it feels like Obama, I'm sorry, that was a 14th slave. It feels like Trump. Oh my God, they're the same. They're the same, man. (laughs) No, but it's like in terms of voter suppression, stop and frisk being the solution, the attitude towards the black community is just to keep the foot 
snugly on the throat where it has been, mm-hmm. but the hate is not directed towards black people. It's like, all right, because the population's not growing, right? The, the, the demographic change. It's like familiar threat. It's a familiar <laughs> threat. So as opposed to 1968, 1969, 1919, all these mm-hmm. other years in history, the black man isn't the threat, but we're just, we got the boot right on the throat mm. and we're and Jeff Sessions is going to make sure that it stays there mm-hmm. to, so that that threat is with such disturbing image but Mexicans and Muslims are the hate now the two M's am I is that just my feeling or is that just do, do other think, people Sarah? feel that way I think that's an accurate reading I mean Trump is a racist obviously and racism affects all marginalized groups but he he singled Muslims and Latinos out repeatedly and fed into existing prejudices and I think you know, those are the two groups that that stand. They won't be the only victims, mm-hmm. but I think he's going to single those two groups out for specifically like state enforced policies in a way that maybe won't be applied to other marginalized people quite to the same effect. And maybe women who want abortions. Also that, but that's also a familiar right. <laughs> problem. Yeah. To disagree a little bit with you, Tanner. Trump had a way of reminding white people that like, oh yeah, black people are still your enemy though. That's true. Right? That's like true. he he dusted off an old favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he, a hit from the stacks talked, of Artoon Day, a hit yeah, from he, the stacks. He like yeah. brought stuff back from the 90s, right? And he was mm-hmm. like, you walk down the street, you get shot. And he he fed his crowd this distant, like a picture that most of them aren't living, but that they were so happy to believe. Right. And the, also the narrative around Black Lives Matter and whether it's him directly or his surrogates or the types of media that have propelled him, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. Blue Lives Matter too. Our cops are under attack. They're encouraging the way he never, I think one time he did say something normal, human, decent, and reasonable about excessive police force. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, that's... That's not right. I don't know if it was an Eric Garner type case, but he said, well, he is the least racist person, but he is the least (laughs) racist. We know that because he told us. We can measure it. He did a self-diagnostic, just like our earlier uh, caller. But he also, more often than not, used the language of these people are making things worse for our cops. Mm -hmm. They're not respecting. I'm the law and order. Like he he went full Nixon. Mm -hmm. So I, I think he's added some new tracks to the hate album, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he reprised some old favorites. He remixed, okay. you know, some classic tunes that we all are familiar with. So people are like, oh, I know that dance. I know that jam. But this new, this Mexican and Muslim joint, that's the new hotness, right? That's, yeah. right. There that's, we go. that's rising in the charts. Yes. <laughs> Whereas you just have like, back- <laughs> that's, that's the analogy I was, I was searching <laughs> yeah. for. Thank you. So Martin, can we get a, can we get a racist, uh, <laughs> can we get a racism <laughs> billboard chart? Just so we can like think, track yeah. who's hot in the streets this actually, week. actually, Right. That's actually super Well, you know, funny. here's here's <laughs> here's the more accurate or or an uh, addition to what you said, yes, which is and. that well, yes, and which is that the record company its quarterly profits are the hot new single, mm-hmm. but it's built on the back catalog. Oh, that's, yeah, that's what I just said. The yeah. back catalog yeah, it's, is like it's that the, good old that, black yeah, racism, that good right. old anti-black. Those those those, those <laughs> albums just they just sell yeah. like the the that's the, the Beatles, right? The Eagles' greatest hit. They just sell every year. That's you're what, like. Oh, Trump bought. Remember when Michael Jackson bought the Beatles' mm-hmm. like, yes. catalog? <laughs> right. Like, what do you? Trump just bought like the Beatles catalog of racism. That's true. There you <laughs> go. But he also released some new artists. Yes. Right? yes. <laughs> Are you telling me he made a label like good music? Like we just got a whole, yeah. whole 
He's a, he's, a, he's an innovator, but he's also conservative, right? He, he's got a, he's got a sustainable financial model behind. Martina, him. this feels like an internet right. project. I'm not going to lie; we need to just have it like really a, a racism. Uh, and I, it I just need some itself. more internet projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for for collaboratively building uh, the record label metaphor for hate. Uh, I think it's good. It's, ca- it's it's creative. It's capitalistic, and it's yeah. it's, it's modern. All right, so <laughs> listeners and co-discussants, uh, thank you for weighing in. Uh, listeners, thanks for calling and emailing in. We have a phone number, so you really can give us a call. Previously, if you said you were a first-time caller, that would have made you a liar. But now we have a phone number, so you can be a truth teller uh, with a voicemail. Call us at six one two eight 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 race R A C E. Or email with uh, an attached voice memo to showaboutrace at gmail.com or with just words printed out attached in a thing that's just called an email. You can email us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Hang in there. The main episode is dropping soon.